All right, if you've got your Bibles with you, then uh, turn with me uh, to John chapter 4. Last night we, uh, we finished our um, family worship series, I suppose you could say, uh, through the book of John. Um, not to say that we went through everything that could, be of, could have been gone through, but um, it is a wonderful book. Uh, and I'm looking forward to going into Ephesians next with uh, the family. Uh, but today we'll be looking at uh, verses 25 to 42 uh, of John chapter 4. Um, but uh, in order to, to just give a bit more context, uh, we might start uh, our reading from, uh, from the verse which we started last week. So uh, John chapter 4, starting from verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes... He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. A profound thing which we'll go through in a little bit more depth shortly. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. Lord, this is your most holy word, um, a statement which is used frequently and rightly, uh, and yet we don't know the half of. Uh, I pray that as we contemplate these things today, 
uh, that you would impress upon us um, a, a greater love for you, Lord Jesus, the Messiah, uh, and for all that you came to do and to teach uh, and the character which you showed. Uh, Lord, give me uh, clarity of mind, not so that uh, any glory would come to me, but simply, Lord, uh, so that I would present your truth to your people in a way which is clear uh, and in a way which is uh, good uh, for spiritual food, I pray. Glorify your own name through this and all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So by, by way of a, a recap thus far of chapter 4, obviously we've just read some, but uh, to reinforce that. Uh, Jesus and the woman of Samaria are at a well, funnily enough, in Samaria, um, where Jesus asks her for a drink, only for her to respond that he, a Jew, asks her, a Samaritan, for this drink. This is the initial surprise that she brings up. Jesus goes on to discuss uh, living water with this woman who, uh, at least at the end of the initial part of the conversation, still seems to think that this living water that Jesus is referring to, uh, its only uh, magical quote-unquote quality, is that it might quench one's physical thirst eternally, uh, but that there is nothing apart from that inherently odd or amazing about it. Uh, and I gave, uh, to reinforce once again, a definition of living water being that living water is eternal life, salvation and blessing that originates within the Godhead for the elect, given by the Son to those chosen by the Father by means of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and even in describing that, what could sound uh, a fairly dry description, it is wonderful to see uh, how the Trinity work together uh, in order to produce the work of salvation in our lives. Uh, we discussed also uh, last message that Jesus, we talked about Christology and the fact that him knowing uh, things about this woman didn't display him as just a mere divine magician or some fortune teller, uh, but so much more is revealed about him. Jesus is the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent King of kings and Lord of lords who upholds the universe uh, by the power of his word, having also created said universe. Uh, and I said that we must be aware of dumbing down our theology. Uh, we have all sorts of cultural things which would uh, make us look at a situation we see in the Bible, such as Jesus revealing prophetic knowledge to this woman, uh, and would cause us to have a, a lower bar of how we interpret that. Uh, we need to really think through uh, what we see described in the scripture and make sure we're not bringing uh, preconceived notions, especially preconceived worldly cultural notions, uh, to our interpretation thereof. Uh, and in light of the, the place of worship controversy, the woman brings up, Jesus blows the lid off this, noting that the way in which the Father is worshipped, the way it occurs, is the vital thing. Uh, and to Again, for context to both the Jew and the Samaritan, I suppose, knowing more about Jews than Samaritans, uh, this would have been uh, a big deal. You know, Jerusalem was the place of worship for the Jew. Or Mount Gerizim was the place of worship for the Samaritan. Uh, to worship God elsewhere would have been uh, amazing to consider. But Jesus says that the way that we worship God is in spirit and truth. It is a way of worship as opposed to a place. 
And I gave this definition being that to worship in spirit and truth is to commune with God spirit to spirit, bringing praise and service to him with hearts full of joy, love, awe, adoration, etc. And all this in accordance with what he, the ultimate source of truth, has revealed to be true, and most specifically, how he has directed us to bring such praise and service. So moving from recap into uh, today's message, uh, really two uh, very simple things uh, that I'll aim to bring out. Uh, firstly, a discussion of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, and I know even in my own study, it's been uh, profitable and wonderful uh, to see and to consider uh, Jesus as the Messiah and, and his Messiah work uh, and how clearly he reveals himself as the Messiah. I um, mean, he says it in a, a very direct sentence um, to the woman of Samaria. Uh, as Jesus has revealed in these verses and as many Samaritans believed, the woman of Samaria came face to face with the long-awaited Messiah, not just an exalted man, but the God of all. So that being the first sort of thing to bring out, Jesus as the Messiah. The second being that Jesus' food is to do the will of his Father. And the reflective question being, what is yours? I know just in, in introducing that thought, uh, I, I've alluded to it before, had a period of joblessness prior to getting my current job of around about three months, if memory serves. Uh, and after many, many, many job applications, I finally landed this job. Uh, and after three months, I was, I was so excited to have received this job that at times it did actually bring me to tears. And that's a period of three months that I waited for. At risk of uh, laying my cards on the table a little, uh, the Jews and those who were um, familiar with the scriptures had waited 4,000 years for the Messiah to come. From the time of Genesis to the time of Messiah uh, being about that 4,000 year period. So this is, uh, needless to say, uh, not even comparable with three months. Uh, so imagine having had that excitement for generations and generations and generations and finally coming face to face with the Messiah at a well in Samaria. Let's go over a couple of verses and then we'll go from there. Verses 25 to 30. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So I mentioned that uh, essentially from the dawn of time until this conversation, a period of about 4,000 years, uh, we have the, the first mention, uh, and I'm going to take just uh, one or two verses from uh, the Torah, uh, one or two verses from the, the prophets, and one from the writings uh, in order to, to speak of this Messiah who is anticipated throughout the Old Testament. The first mention that we get of Messiah is in uh, Genesis 3.15 whereby God in addressing uh, the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, being the Messiah, and you shall bruise his heel. 
So can you imagine, I mean, each one of us has lived, uh, I'm going to go with, well, even at the end of our lifetime, each one of us will have lived, let's say, 80, 90 years. And can you imagine uh, the, the excitement that you hopefully will have of passing into heaven at that point? And that is a period of, of 80 to 90 years, just each one of us. Here, uh, whether you want to say it's 4,000 or more, they have been waiting for this Messiah 4,000 years. I don't have the maths off the top of my head to know how many times 80 goes into 4,000, but lots and lots of times. Uh, and this is how, how long the Jews and those familiar with the scriptures have been awaiting this Messiah. Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 to 19 uh, Moses speaking to the people of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, from among their brothers, uh, being a, an even more explicit uh, description of this Messiah. And I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So from Genesis uh, to Deuteronomy, uh, the, the people of Samaria, who as I said last week, were accepting of the books of the Torah, uh, have been awaiting this Messiah and the Jews uh, accepting the whole canon, uh, at least the Old Testament canon, uh, have been thinking, contemplating, hopefully, this Messiah that was to come. Uh, and Jesus himself summarizes in chapter 5, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So from the Torah, uh, from the prophets, uh, the verse which we all uh, become very familiar with at Christmas time every year. Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Which, by the by, is a great verse to keep in your back pocket if you're witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, this Messiah to come is mighty God, not a God. And Messiah is seen in the in the writings, in the book of Psalms, among others. Psalm 110, as I read at the start, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So we see Messiah, and of course, uh, as you're all aware, there are numerous other places that we could look to to see the Messiah in the Old Testament writings. I've just chosen those few. Uh, the Samaritan woman was right. Messiah was coming. But the Samaritan woman uh, was about to see that the Messiah was not just coming, the Messiah was speaking with her face to face. Can you imagine after all this time meeting the Messiah face to face, what that would be like? 
She hadn't seen it when Jesus revealed that he was the giver of living water that wells up to eternal life, nor when he revealed himself to be a prophet. But here Jesus tells her plainly, I who speak to you am he. Verse 26. This is the Messiah, the Christ, Mashiach, the saviour of the world, the long-awaited one. Jesus, the Christ, was right there in front of this woman. How long humanity had waited for this serpent crusher, this offspring, this seed of Abraham, this other prophet like Moses, or this child whose government would ceaselessly increase. And so to bring it back to us as individuals, who have you been excited to meet in your life? Chances are perhaps that uh, each one of us have had a a brush with celebrity in one degree or another, um, whether it be a celebrity of the world or perhaps a theologian that you look up to or or what have you. Uh, Who have you been excited to meet in your life? Uh, What was or is their status, their role? What was it about them that made you excited to meet them? And then how does your excitement to meet that person or those people, whoever they were, how does your excitement to meet them compare with the excitement that you have uh, to be a person who is acquainted with the Messiah, the long-awaited one? See, we as Christians, we know the Messiah. Yes, we haven't uh, met him face to face, but we know the Messiah. So how much excitement does that build within you? Surely it ought to be a lot. In verses 29, sorry, how does your excitement to meet uh, this Messiah compare with your present excitement uh, to have met the Messiah and your anticipatory excitement to meet him in his kingdom in heaven? In verses 29 to 30, uh, John recounts the woman entering into town, speaking of Jesus, who has told her all she ever did and then questioning if she, if he rather, could be the Christ. What is the reaction then of the Samaritans? Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. There is, uh, I think in these verses, a sense of uh, excitement, excited urgency in their coming to meet Jesus. Something in what she has said, which we'll go through in later depth later on, something that she has said uh, has made them tweak. Could this really be? the Messiah, and what is their reaction? It seems as if they drop whatever they have done and they race out to meet this Messiah. And so do we retain this immediacy, this urgency in coming to meet the Messiah? Uh, Indeed, we we come here to worship today. Uh, Is there a sense of urgency in coming to to meet uh, with God here at this place, to worship him in amongst his people? being one of a variety of applications. Verses 31 to 38. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. 
For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. The notion from these verses which um, I introduced in the introduction, which stuck out to me, uh, was that Jesus said to them in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So again, in that reflective questioning, what is your appetite for the work of God's kingdom? Jesus said that uh, you know, he's sitting here on this well in the heat of the day, about 12 o'clock during the middle of the day, uh, hungry, thirsty, tired, and yet he's able to say that his food, the very thing which sustains him, is to do the work of the Father. It seems as if he is so captivated by this work that even his physical needs are put to the side because he is so focused on this doing the will of the Father, on doing his work. We speak of, uh, for example, being satisfied in our, our occupation, in our hobby, in a relationship, in insert object of satisfaction here, whatever it is. Uh, but to what extent is our appetite satisfied by doing the will of our God and accomplishing his work? Now, I've said before, and I'll say it again, uh, I ask such questions uh, hoping that they will cause you to think about such things uh, I'm not saying it in a condemning way, although if that needs to happen, then so be it. Hopefully, it is our food to do such things, and we can be encouraged to continue on in the same vein. Uh, nonetheless, where conviction needs to occur, uh, let it occur. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says we were created for such works and we will find our greatest satisfaction in him as we do his will and as we accomplish his works, which he has foreordained for us to do. We find our greatest satisfaction when it is focused upon Christ, the only source of true satisfaction. And even in the world, we use such phrases as I was created for X, whatever it might be. Uh, and we use this in order to convey deep satisfaction in doing something. Now, thinking of Ephesians 2.10 as an objective statement, of course, it comes from the Word of God. It is an objectively true statement. Uh, it applies also subjectively. What great satisfaction there is when we truly submit ourselves to God's hand and to do the will of Him who sent us accomplishing his work. To put uh, some more legs on that, we could say that these good works that God has foreordained for us uh, include, but are certainly not limited to, uh, evangelizing, preaching, Bible reading, prayer, gathering for corporate worship, things that we might term uh, as the, the ordinary means of grace, or at least related thereto. But it could also be considered as uh, pursuing godliness in spousal relationships, attitudes and actions regarding children, uh, how you start your day on a very practical note, your occupation, etc., etc. Uh, even things that we might think of as, as less happy chappy and things that require a bit of sacrifice, sacrificing your needs and desires in favor of that of others, removing worldly and sinful desires. 
removing sources of temptation. All these things and, and many more uh, could be considered uh, doing the works of God, which he has foreordained for us to do. These good works, which we are created in Christ Jesus to do. And so whether the immediate thought of these things uh, perks you up or brings you down, they are examples of places, uh, things and attitudes whereby we can submit ourselves to God's will and find delicious satisfaction in doing so, to continue the metaphor of food. It appears that, moving on from there, uh, Jesus' food, as described in these verses, to make a more immediate application, uh, was his evangelizing to the Samaritan woman and subsequently to the people of Samaria. Jesus saying to his disciples to look up uh, and see the fields white for harvest, verse 35, uh, some interpret as him uh, literally, because of course we have to keep in mind that this was said to uh, a literal people in a literal place, uh, and John is just recording it for us, uh, some interpret this as Jesus is saying to those with him to actually lift up their heads and look at the people from Samaria coming who may well have been dressed in white uh, and looked with uh, some degree or another like the, uh, the white heads of wheat, for example, uh, flapping around in the wind coming towards them. So Jesus says, look up, see the fields ripe for harvest. And this, of course, is the the immediate application uh, to those who heard Jesus say this initially. To the Samaritans on their way to Jesus, uh, some of whom had believed on the woman's testimony and some of whom would believe in the course of the two days teaching which Jesus was to give there. But in using that principle and applying it more broadly, application can be made uh, to the elect in every age. Are our heads lifted up? Are we looking for these harvest-ready fields? Do we pray uh, that the Lord of the harvest would send out more laborers into that harvest? Do we pray that he would open doors in our everyday lives so that we might see those coming towards us, be it literally or otherwise, uh, who are ready for harvest and that we might be willing participants in speaking to them of the things of God? And lastly, for this section, then we'll move on to the, the closing verses. Uh, a few encouragements are found in verses 36 to 38. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus speaks here about the work of salvation, which is uh, pictured in the harvest metaphor, as the work of numerous laborers. Uh, and potentially, even laborers over uh, multiple years, multiple generations. Uh, for example, numerous folks would, would say that these are others have labored, referring to those who have labored in the, the Old Testament times, to John the Baptist, and even to Jesus himself. But uh, to use the metaphor of over multiple ages, consider especially those who have laboured in the Old Testament of various uh, names and persuasions. Because sometimes we're, we're tempted, I think, uh, to think that 
we, we build Christ's kingdom uh, from zero and we need to get to 100 uh, in the year 2023. And we forget the fact that God is the one in control here. God has been building his kingdom uh, since the very dawn of time. And so Jesus saying that uh, you know, others have sown and you are reaping, others have labored and you are entering into their labor ought to be an encouragement to us here today. It is not up to us. Of course, the ultimate work, as I said, is, is God. God does the whole thing. But we are not to, to think that we must labor to build the whole of Christ's kingdom right here in 2023. Rather, this work has been going on for generations since the dawn of time. It is not all up to us. Uh, and in a generation uh, which says, if it is to be, it is up to me, uh, such truths uh, are of wonderful comfort. Now, in saying that, uh, don't let that be an excuse for a uh, a lack of productivity, for a lack of uh, asserting yourself to the work of Christ's kingdom wherever he might have laid you. Uh, but nonetheless, the fact that God is building his kingdom and we become co-participants with those down through the ages uh, ought to be something which is encouraging to us. And even if we were to keep uh, just one time period, just one generation in mind, uh, the fact that other folks labor in the work of salvation is once again encouraging. Uh, we used to, myself and Tracy, used to know a, a woman named Ruth, uh, and she would speak about the, the work of salvation in a person's life being like minutes on a clock. Uh, and of course you have uh, 60 minutes uh, in an hour, and the metaphor that she was giving was that you know, one person might come along and say something to a person, or they might read something on the internet or, or wherever whatever the, the means might be. And that might just put the first minute on that person's clock. Uh, you might come along at a later date and say something further, or, or they might see your example, they might see Christ in you, and that might put another minute onto that person's clock. Uh, and of course, all in the sovereignty of God, the metaphor being that ultimately, once that person got round to 60, um, perhaps it would be that the Holy Spirit would work that work of salvation in the person. Uh, and whether you like the metaphor or otherwise, I hope you can see that uh, the point being that we don't uh, labor on our own. Ultimately, it is the work of God. And as his means, uh, we labor with many others through many ages and even in this current age uh, to uh, bring about his kingdom in as much as it is up to us. So encouragement number one, salvation is a work of the Lord. Uh, encouragement number two, God often uses multiple laborers to bring about salvation. The sower and reaper may rejoice together, verse 36. And encouragement number three, building on that, uh, God may well use multiple laborers, even over multiple ages, to bring about the work of salvation. And hence, the fact that God uh, weaves all of this together in his sovereignty over however long it might be. Surely Paul rightly says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. One last thought uh, on this section. Uh, verses 31 to 38, uh, though certainly adding something to the narrative of the story uh, and being uh, contextual, it's, it's not like it doesn't make sense, uh, are a bit like an insertion 
uh, which could be taken out and the story uh, may actually flow better. Um, to, to illustrate, read with me uh, verses 28 to 30, and then I'll read from 39 to 42. So John 4, starting from verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. So arguably you could uh, take verses 31 to 38 out of the text and shift them to the side for a minute, uh, and the text may actually flow better. Uh, so why did John add this section uh, when it's almost uh, an interruption to the flow of the text? I think the ultimate answer would be uh, ask John, or perhaps even better, ask the Lord who inspired John to write such things, um, but to give a, a thought or two. Consider chapter 4 again in brief. Jesus has revealed himself as the giver of living water, of, of salvation, of eternal life. Jesus has shown that true worship is not restricted to a location nor a people group, uh, but is done in spirit and truth. And in offering salvation, eternal life to this Samaritan, an enemy of the Jews, keeping in mind, and describing to her how worship to her how worship to Yahweh ought to occur he is implicitly though quite obviously showing that salvation is offered to the whole world to all people groups Jesus then goes on to say and to demonstrate that his food is to seek and save that which is lost even his so-called enemies from every tribe tongue and nation will be worshippers of Yahweh, from the Jew to the Samaritan, from Australia to Zimbabwe. And so Jesus demonstrates here in these verses uh, his satisfaction, this satisfaction of appetite, both in his speaking one-on-one -on -one with the Samaritan woman uh, before the insert and after in speaking to the Samaritans generally, even over the course of two days following the insert. So the, the verses 31 to 38 almost form like the proof of the pudding. Jesus is talking about his food is to do the will of his father. And that, sh that is shown in the verses that precede and then that follow uh, the insert. I'm going to offer that as my uh, interpretation anyways. So verses 39 to 42, I've already read them. Uh, but at times we reflect Jesus' appetite to do the father's will. We speak... Uh, of how satisfying it would be to see even one soul come to Christ. And we rightly speak in such a fashion. So how blessed, consider this, that many Samaritans came to believe. How blessed, how praise-inspiring, how filling, to continue that food metaphor, must it have been to see so many souls saved in Samaria. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, says verse 39. 
And this even, as I've said before, amongst the enemies of the Jews. And surely for one who has had their heart shaped uh, by God, as indeed God himself has, Jesus, what an amazing thing to see uh, even Christ's enemies uh, coming to him, believing in him. How deeply nourishing in a spiritual way. And keeping in mind we described uh, living water as involving the entire Trinity, uh, this revival of sorts is like a, a now but not yet form of Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I wonder if when Jesus said this to the disciples, uh, they thought back to this experience which they had in Samaria and said, yes, this seems uh, exactly in accordance with what Jesus said and did when, they, when he spoke with the woman of Samaria at the well. Consider in uh, the initial nature of the Samaritans' belief, being the Samaritans from uh, the town. Verse 39 makes implicit reference uh, to verses 28 and 29, uh, and of course verses 16 to 18, where Jesus' prophetic insight to the woman's numerous prior husbands and her living with a man out of wedlock uh, takes place. Verses 28 and 29 say, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And verse 39 in summary says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. We like, or if you're anything like me, we like testimonies. For better or for worse, oftentimes when the uh, the preacher tells a, a story, an illustration of the passage. Uh, it tends to, to bring us back uh, to the message, to bring our focus back. Or we enjoy gathering uh, at gatherings of God's people and hearing how God has worked through people uh, in order to bring about his work in their lives. And it seems to me that the, the Samaritans from this town understood the substance of what underlay the woman's testimony. Because so I want to uh, posit to you that there was more to uh, what the woman said than can be grasped from a surface level reading of it. The substance of the woman's testimony ought to affect the way uh, that we speak to others about Christ. She did not just say, I was a, a five or more fold adulteress, but then I met Jesus and now I'm monogamous. Rather, uh, in order to uh, ex explain and expand upon what the woman has said, I want to posit to you that she said something more like this. Here is a man who with insight gained nowhere else aside from God and being God has revealed to me my sin. In doing so, has offered me the only solution, eternal life and blessing, living water, which is his to give and only God can give this. Could this be the snake crusher who beats, conquers and forgives the sin that has so spread itself since Eden? Could this be the saviour of the world? I want to posit to you that uh, something more like that is the substance of what the woman says. I realise more words, uh, but the substance of what the woman says. 
The former that I said is, is more like I met a guru and now my life is better. The latter, I have come face to face with God's Messiah. He has shown me my true problem and equipped me with the true solution. As a result of that, my life is better. Keeping in mind when I say better, not that everything is happy chappy, but rather uh, that the, the quality of life is better, is more godly. And so my point in saying this is that when speaking about Christ, do not offer a worldly therapy with a side of Christianity. Rather, point those who you would speak to to something which is only receivable in the Messiah, only receivable in Christ. In him, we have the knowledge of our sin, but we also have the solution there from it. This is something which uh, seems to undergird what Christ, what the woman says. The world has got uh, the programs and some of them may actually work. So you're offering Jesus as like a side to a worldly therapy is not really helping. Rather, Christians, because we are under God, know the real problem and have the real solution. Let us proclaim the same uh, boldly and with excitement. Uh, and though I, as I say, as I have expounded uh, the woman's words, as I have expounded and expanded them, uh, it seems that this is the substance of what the woman says. Uh, and that may well account for the reaction of the town who, with some urgency, come to see the Christ. And I'm not saying don't share your testimony, uh, but rather to be aware of what you are pointing to in sharing your testimony. And so the, uh, the conclusion, and this is going to be the equivalent, the, the oral equivalent of like, if you blink, you're going to miss it. The conclusion is just uh, four points. Know the Messiah, point to the Messiah, know what the Messiah taught, and be sustained and satisfied by that which causes the same in the Messiah. Know the Messiah, point to the Messiah, know what he taught, and be satisfied by what he is satisfied by. Uh, in four very, very short points, uh, that seems to be the substance of what the text uh, has for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for you, the Messiah. Lord, I, I pray that, um, that we would be so grateful so full of praise that you have seen fit to set your affection upon us. Lord, may we marvel that we are among your elect and though as yet we have not come face to face with you, nonetheless, may we love you. May we be so excited that the Messiah has come. Uh, indeed, Lord, we have arguably even more advantage than the woman of Samaria for we live uh, the other side of your death, your burial, and your resurrection. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help us to grow in affection of you and in desire to live in accordance with your ways day by day, uh, in accordance with, with King Jesus and all that he has said. I ask it in your name. Amen.